Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. iHeartRadio presents Inside the Studio. I'm your host, Joe Levy. My guest this episode is James Taylor, who has two new recordings out right now. American Standard is his album of classic tunes drawn from the Great American Songbook. Breakshot is an audiobook, a memoir about his family, his music, and his life until the age of 21. The first is full of great melodies. Songs like Pennies from Heaven, Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat, Moon River, all rendered with warm intimacy and delicate control. The second delivers strikingly direct accounts of Taylor's joys and struggles, including the depression that saw him hospitalized as a senior in high school and the heroin addiction that began not too long after when he'd moved to New York City in 1966 or so to try and make it as a musician, playing a regular gig at a Greenwich Village club called The Night Owl with his friend Danny Korchmer and their band The Flying Machine. It took Taylor a few more years than that to find fame and fortune. And as he recounts in Breakshot, it also took a fair amount of luck. He tells a story in the memoir, by turns horrifying and hilarious, of a car accident in London where he was living in 1968 while he recorded his debut album for the Beatles label, Apple. And while we're talking about luck, let's talk about recording for the Beatles label, Apple, in 1968, while the Beatles are working on the White Album? But anyway... Driving home early one morning, Taylor talks about how he was high and holding drugs that he'd scored, and he hit a man. And when the cop showed up, 
he was pretty sure that both his career and his life were over before they'd really begun. But it turned out the man that he'd hit was okay. And that, in fact, he'd been running away from the cops, who ended up thanking Taylor for stopping the guy. Beatles or not, that first album went nowhere. But in early 1970, Taylor released Sweet Baby James with his first hit, Fire and Rain. That album, that song, they would help define a style that itself helped define the 1970s, confessional singer-songwriting. Yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone. Suzanne plans we may put an end to you. Walked out this morning and I wrote down the song. Just can't remember who to send me to. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. Though Taylor explains in Breakshot exactly how autobiographical many of his songs are, who the Suzanne of Fire and Rain was and how she died, his music might be more confessional in feeling than fact. I mean, you could listen to the title track of Sweet Baby James for most of your life and fully understand the sweetly exhausted deep green and blue emotions it describes without ever knowing that it was an account of James driving home to North Carolina to meet his nephew, his older brother Alex's newborn son, also named James. Or maybe that's just me. I mean, I listened to that song for decades at least once on the very turnpike from Stockbridge to Boston that it talks about, and I definitely understood all the feelings without ever really knowing the story. At first, American Standard seems like something completely different. I mean, this is James Taylor singing other people's songs, and show tunes aren't exactly confessions. But look at it this way. American Standard is Taylor's first album in five years, but hardly his first time playing covers. He's been singing them for a long time, if you don't count his version of the 19th century Stephen Foster song, Old Susanna, on Sweet Baby James, then you'd have to count his version of Carol King's You've Got a Friend on his next album, Mudslide Slim. And then there's his duet with his then-wife, Carly Simon, on Inez and Charlie Fox's Mockingbird in 1974, and his great reworking of the 1960 Jimmy Jones hit, Handyman, on JT in 1977. I mean, he released a whole album called Covers in 2008 and the More Covers EP in 2009. And both of those have a lot of old soul, R&B, and Motown songs on them. In a way, those covers are a form of autobiography. As he explains in Breakshot, and talked about in depth with me, Taylor grew up playing that kind of music alongside his brother Alex in a band they had called the Fabulous Corsairs. An American Standard tells Taylor's story in a similar way. These are songs he grew up hearing. Some were on albums in his parents' record collection in North Carolina. Some he heard on family trips to New York City to see Broadway shows, a regular event organized by his mom. He does a version of Surrey with the Fringe on top from Oklahoma on the new album, and it's not even his first time recording a song from Oklahoma. More Covers starts with a lovely version of Oh, What a Beautiful Morning, that has that James Taylor trademark mix of bluesy finger-picking and reserved bossa nova swing. Oh, 
I asked him, what keeps him going back to songs from that musical? It's really part of my DNA by now. I just listened to the cast album so many times, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid. You know, it's, it's a great one. It's uh, got, uh, people will say we're in love. It's got, uh, everything's up to date in Kansas City. That's a great tune, you know. And uh, Poor Judd is Dead, that's, that's also great. And, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, I'm just a gal that can't say no. They're funny, uh, they push the plot along, they establish the characters, they deepen an emotional moment. You know, it's excellent uh, songwriting craft, you know. It's like these guys really knew what they were doing. And in my opinion, it's the epitome of popular music, you know, that's sort of the high watermark for American popular music. Breakshot is an inside look at how Taylor's music first came together the sounds and experiences that shaped him. And it also talks about how his family came apart during that same time. American Standard shows where his music came from and how it keeps going. When we sat down to talk, he had much more to say about both. James Taylor, welcome to Inside the Studio. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. So you have a, a new audio memoir. Yes. Breakshot. It's about your first 21 years mm-hmm. on this earth. And also a new album, American Standard, which is a collection that draws from the Great American Songbook. And right at the start of Breakshot, you refer to yourself as a professional biographer or autobiographer who usually talks about yourself with your guitar in your hand. That's right. Uh, It's just the nature of the way I write songs. uh, They're very personal and they're very internal uh, process sort of brought out into the open. And uh, so I I do think of myself as basically navigating through life and uh, describing that process. But what I was really struck by listening to the new record is that although these are other people's songs... Mm. There's a, a definite autobiographical quality to it, at least in that these are songs you grew up on. It's true. I, I grew up listening to these songs, and when I picked up the guitar, I started trying to play them. And uh, so the songs that we chose for the album actually are songs that I've had guitar arrangements of for for many years, many years. And, um, and I got together with another great guitar player, uh, John Pizzarelli, and uh, John and I basically went back and forth and sort of solidified the arrangements and uh, then cut them with two guitars. And that, that basically is the, is the core of the album. That, those were the basic tracks. We cut them over about a two-week period, but then we came back and worked on them, uh, worked on the vocals, uh, added solos here and there, and uh, sometimes some rhythm, sometimes some drums. This you did at your workspace at home, the barn, mm-hmm. going back, starting to about 
two years ago in 2017. And and you've said that that working that way, you and a, and another guitarist is a little bit of a, a break from your normal mo. Yeah, it it is. What I'm used to doing is uh, write a song on the guitar, and then I typically will take it to my bass player and uh, Jimmy Johnson, or uh, and or my my piano player uh, uh, Larry Goldings or Jeff Babco. That basically is the process of taking it from the guitar and teaching it to a band. Typically, Mike Landau on electric guitar, Jimmy Johnson on bass, Steve Gadd on drums. And, you know, that will be the rhythm section that cuts the song. But in this case, I wanted to keep the guitar the center of the arrangement because, above all, these are guitar arrangements, uh, my own guitar arrangements of these songs that I've lived with so many years. So It's got a really intimate quality to it, two people sitting, playing guitar, particularly on your version of God Bless the Child. I was struck by just how intimate that was. Then that's God shall get, then that's not shall lose. So the Bible said, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may have, God bless the child that's got his own. And I was wondering, you know, you say these are songs that you first learned. You were, say, 14, 15 years old learning guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and is this the way you would have played them with your family, with your brothers, or, say, on the vineyard growing up playing with Danny Korchmar? You know, th- this two-guitar approach, is it a throwback in a way to that time? Yeah, some of them were, I, I think, relatively few uh, of these songs would I have played with my family, although my brother in Livingston and I might have shared a couple of them. And Cooch and I uh, actually did play God Bless the Child together uh, in in the 60s when we were here in, in New York with our, our flying machine band. Um, that was that was one of our uh, our favorites. Uh, we we did a number of, uh, of songs from that era, actually, in the flying machine. So yeah, it's um, they they've all been with me for a long time, and and I wanted to to keep the focus on the guitar because often when you when you bring in a rhythm section, the guitar sort of disappears into it, you know, and uh, I I wanted to have that stay central. We wanted our songs to be simple and cut down to their essentials, but we also wanted to acknowledge how sophisticated and how rich these things were harmonically, you know. Back in those days, songs were written to be sung by anonymous. You didn't know who would sing it. They were usually sold as sheet music. Of course, when 33 and a third LPs came out, they people started listening to these, you know, to recordings of these songs, but a lot of them were written before recording was good enough. You'd want someone to sit down at the piano with the sheet music, you know? I just think that nowadays when we listen to uh, recorded music, we're listening to a performance. We're listening to a specific artist and their statement of this song. But it's different from a song being enough on its own to hold your attention to, to do its work. Or as you're saying, because sheet music was so popular, made to be sung at home, Yeah, right? exactly. Or in, in the pub or at a party or, yeah. And that gets to, although we, we, we lose track of this sometimes, that, that gets to the almost folk music quality of this kind of stuff, that, that there was a communal experience. These songs 
went out into the world, not just on records, but as sheet music and went into people's homes. Some of these songs date back to the 20s. Mm. Um, Probably the most modern is Moon River. But some of them, My Blue Heaven, go back to the 20s. And I was struck by how foundational they, they were to even that rock experience in the 50s and 60s, because, of course, My Blue Heaven... Fats Domino yep, cut it. great version of it. But, yep. but even I was amazed when I was researching Teach Me Tonight, which you do on this record. I was amazed. I didn't know Stevie Wonder and the Four Tops cut it. Wow. Um, and, and a little different than your version. Well, you know, my version is very much defined by my guitar technique and what my voice can do. So those limiting sort of lenses give it a sound. And... You know, it's important that when you do a song, you you bring something new to it. You don't want to just copy something that someone else has done. What you're going to do is get a sort of a pale imitation of it. You need to you need to take it somewhere new. And again, these songs had been with me for a, for a long time. But my my point is this: that when you listen to music today, you're listening to a f- performance. The way this person performed it on that record, that's what you're hearing. But you're not hearing the song. You know, if you tried to get these songs to stand on their own, some of them do, certainly. But these songs from the American Songbook, you know, as done by Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett and Sarah Vaughan and Dinah Washington and Nat King Cole, written by the Gershwins or Cole Porter or Frank Lesser, you know, the the Rodgers and Hammerstein, Rodgers and Hart, Lerner and Lowe, they are at such a high level of musical sophistication, and all they have to sell them are the melody, the lyric, and the harmonic context or the changes, the arrangement. Then they go out into the world and get repeated a million times. But the songwriting craft itself is such a high quality. They're really where we peaked out. And certainly they're what informed my music when I was growing up with a number of other things, blues, uh, Celtic music, that sort of uh, English Protestant hymnal, uh, Afro-Cuban music, Brazilian music. They also informed uh, Lennon-McCartney. They sang uh, Till There Was You from, uh, from The Music Man. These songs have had a huge influence on that generation of songwriters. And I think it's important to reintroduce them, to keep them alive in our musical culture, because they're really uh, an education, you know. Not to be too preachy about it, you know, but but they are, they're great. Preach, please. Go ahead, brother. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. The corn is as high as an elephant's eye. And it looks like it's climbing clean up you talk about them as an education it was important to your parents to your mother to educate you in this way you talked about taking trips from durham north carolina up to new york every two or three months to go to museums but also to go to broadway shows that's right she would take two or three of us there were five of us kids and she'd take a a batch up um usually the older ones, and, uh, you know, expose us to a little big city. You know, When I was 12, I, I got my first guitar on one of those trips to New York. You know? So that was, uh, I, I had played the cello before that, but, but very reluctantly and not very well. 
Mm. Although I think it, I think it did give me a, a, you know, contributed also to to what musical sense I had. So th- this first guitar is something you mentioned in Breakpoint. You say you got it home, restrung it pretty much immediately, changed the nylon strings out for steel strings. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, too. And uh, your brother spray painted it blue. Yeah, he didn't do it right away. That was a couple of years later okay. that he got hold of it. He hung it up in the closet uh, by one of its strings. He basically pulled the string out, wrapped it around the closet pole so that it was suspended by a string, and then just uh, put newspapers underneath it and spray-painted it blue all over the frets, the strings, everything. He also uh, uh, he strung it to be uh, to an open tuning, which meant it could be played with a bottleneck, you know, so he... He was uh, just dabbling himself with it. I see. Okay, so the the, the idea of a blue guitar strung to an open tuning to play the blues, it was a whole concept in a way. Yeah, yeah, it was. And, and you know, at that point, I'd, I'd gone off to school. I was no longer around, so he, he just, uh, you know, I probably had my next guitar by then, which I had borrowed from a, from a friend of the family. He had a, a Gibson uh, J45, and... Uh, and that was my second guitar. And was this your older brother, uh, Alex, who spray-painted it? So this, this was something that fascinated me. You talk about when you were, a, I believe, a, a junior in high school. In Breakpoint, you talk about coming home for that year and playing in his band. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, it was a typical high school garage band, you know. Alex said, you know, as I, as I say in the, in the memoir, he had really taken root in the South and the Southern culture and he had discovered soul music, you know, and, and brought it into the house. And all of us were just had our, our, our minds expanded by Ray Charles and Don Covey and uh, Jackie Wilson and uh, the Coasters and, uh, you know, the Stax Volt stable and, and so many, and, and the Motown uh, sounds and stuff. In the, in the early 60s, it was just amazingly rich ground and it changed everything for me. But he wanted to play these songs. And um, with a number of other high school students, we, we got together. Uh, a guy, Cam Shannon, played or- organ. Uh, Vic Lipscomb played the bass. I played guitar. Alex sang. Um, and I can't remember who our drummer was right now. But, but at any rate, we started uh, uh, hiring out to play, play uh, uh, sort of fraternity parties at, at, at the college. You know, University of North Carolina was the... Was what the town was basically built around. So we played for those audiences. We played for sock hops or, uh, you know, uh, senior proms or wh- whatever we could get. And we, we, you know, we had a U-Haul and a station wagon, and we, we hauled this stuff around and played. And, and you were called uh, uh, the, the Fabulous Corsairs? The Fabulous right? Corsairs, Okay. Yeah. And this kind of music in North Carolina at that time played for those audiences. This is a, a culture called beach music. Can you can you exactly. tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, beach music was was what was played from Washington DC down to the beginnings of Florida. It was like there was an entire scene, spring break, uh summertime on the water. It was where college students went from from all over the south. They went to the to the beach. And the bands that played those places, those centers of uh, sort of you know, exuberance and, and uh, disinhibition, those sort of party centrals, 
there were bands that played those, and that, that was known as beach music. Primarily, it was soul, uh, African-American uh, uh, artists, and, uh, you know, it just caught on. It was a, a huge thing in the South, and we wanted to play those tunes. There was a circuit in the South, you know, this is in the segregated South in the early 60s and late 50s. You know, the civil rights movement was definitely on. University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill was, was an early center of, uh, of resistance in the, and, you know, this was going on all over the South. At that time, um, uh, black acts that wanted to play the South had to be extremely careful, you know, where they, where they, they stepped and, uh, so there was a group of clubs called the Chitlin Circuit, mm-hmm. you know. Um, there were a couple of clubs in, in Raleigh and in Durham that were on that circuit, and my brother just, he, he took us to those places. I was a year younger than he, but he, you know, he said, come on, we're going to hear, we're going to hear James Brown. You, it's going to take your head off, you know. So it, it was, too. It was amazing. Going back to that moment you just brought up, the civil rights era in the South, on, a, on American Standard, you do, you've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. It's a song from South Pacific. It is, yeah. You describe it as an important song to your mother. Can you tell me a little more about that and why it was appropriate for this record, which is tends more towards love songs, th- this record, but that song stands out. Yeah, in the plot of the musical South Pacific, it's a statement about uh, about bigotry and about um, racial hatred and, and about uh, the sort of rules that, that society puts down that, that limit people. And, uh, you know, basically what it says is that it's not human nature to hate people for this reason, just because they're of another race or because there's something uh, a general about, you know, that, that you've arbitrarily sort of drawn a line and decided to hate people or, that are across that line. Um, uh, you have to be taught to do that by your parents, by your society, by your church, by, you know, your, your context. You, you know, you have to be taught to hate. It's not natural. And uh, that's what the song says. And it was uh, an important song to my mom. Um, in many ways, North Carolina was a, sh- was a culture shock to her, mm. without a question. And your dad came from there? My dad came from North Carolina, went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and then he went to medical school at, at Harvard and uh, did his residency and internship at Boston City and, and Mass General. And that's where he met my mom while he was, he was up there. And uh, after they married and had a whole mess of kids in, in a very short time, Dad uh, moved us all down to North Carolina where he had taken a job at uh, UNC where he had gone to school and studied pre-med. Anyway, for my mom, that was uh, she was a very progressive, as was my father, very politically progressive and liberal, and uh, my dad had grown up with it, and he under- sort of understood it, hated it, but understood it. But my mom was just sh- so shocked by it because she was the daughter of a, f- a fisherman from Newburyport, Massachusetts. And so 
uh, she got involved inevitably in the civil rights uh, disobedience, uh, protests, um, picket lines, and, and the like. That song is a, a rare thing to make that kind of a statement in a musical. In point of fact, for those who don't know, South Pacific drew a lot of heat, came to Broadway in the late 40s, and, and for its content drew a fair amount of heat at the, at the height of the blacklist. Uh, that song in particular got it condemned as communist propaganda. Hard to see how, but okay. Well, I think tensions ran high uh, yeah. in those days. You heard it growing up in the in the South in the fifties, and you described the South in the fifties as as fighting the the last battle of the Civil War. You're you're recording it now and putting it out on a record in 2020. Does it seem odd to you that it's still relevant? That it's still a statement in today's world? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's remarkable. I don't think it's odd. Um, because I think this kind of racial hatred uh, or fear dies slowly. And um, I believe that some of our politicians um, have decided to use that fear in order to court a segment of the population. I, I believe there's an old division in this country. We fought a civil war to survive it. As Abraham Lincoln said, war deciding whether this nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. It is central to our history that there's a division, this North-South division. And I feel as though the Republican Party has made a deal with the devil. I, I feel as though they have actually redivided us into sort of union and confederacy again. And, uh, you know, the entire South was Democrat before... Uh, before the Civil Rights Act, and within 10 years, it had all flopped over to the party of Lincoln, supposedly, say in quotes, the party of Lincoln. That's why they were Democrats, because Lincoln was a Republican. And it's my feeling that, in a way, we have a Confederate administration in the, in the White House. Sorry to say it, uh, I know many people in the South will disagree with me, and, uh, and it, it seems to me as though people have, for political reasons, reopen that wound. And so a song like this, you've got to be carefully taught to hate the people your relatives hate as just too much relevance today. That's right. Well, it's frustrating that we're making such slow progress. And I think that we have to accept it as a national priority that we get over this racial hatred and this, this racial stereotyping. We have to commit ourselves to it and, and uh, get serious about it as if it were a, a matter of national survival, because it really is. I mean, there are things that are the people's business that we need to do. and One of them is bringing human activity in line with the health of the planet. Another is uh, finally seeing to this uniquely American problem of racial hatred. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. 
if you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. So, on American Standard, many of these songs are familiar and beloved. Moon River, The Nearness of You. There's one I'd never heard before. And I'm going to guess you you know exactly which one I'm talking about. Yeah, as easy as rolling off a log. As easy as rolling off a log. I found it easy, baby, to fall in love with you. It was as easy as rolling cigarettes. If that ain't easy, maybe there's simpler things to do. For instance, let's cuddle. I love to cuddle. So this is a song from a 1938 Looney Tunes cartoon. How did it end up on this record? I remembered the song from the cartoon, you know, worked it up on the guitar. And, and uh, when I played it to, uh, to John Pizzarelli, who was my collaborator in this, uh, in this project, my co-producer, um, when I played it for John, uh, you know, he loved it. He said, that's a great tune, you know. And we had to change it a little bit and expand it in a couple of places. And then it's sung by, um, by two characters in the cartoon, male and female. And, uh, uh, you know, it had to be brought in line with one person singing it rather than shared. Uh, uh, but, it, but basically, that's the, that's the song. I went and found this cartoon online. Oh, you uh, did? It, it, okay. I, I believe it's called Cat College. In the, Catnip College. Catnip College. With a, with a K, too. Wow, so, yes, that's yeah. right. Uh, like Crazy Cat. And these cool cats are in school, singing history, swing style. And one of them is a dunce because he has no rhythm. He gets his rhythm from a cuckoo clock and then rushes off and serenades a, a very comely-looking kitten uh, with she's this one song. Hot, she's a hot kitten. That, that It's true. But, um, yeah. I just have to ask. Th- this is from a 38 cartoon. You probably saw it as a kid. Did you really remember it? 
all these years? Sure. If you have a certain kind of memory for, for lyrics and music that just, um, it's a different, got to be a different place in your brain. I can remember songs in Italian. I don't speak any Italian at all, but I can remember La Donne Mobile uh, or Non Abbiamo Segreti. And it's because it's connected with a song that I remember all those words and because it's in a musical context. But otherwise, I, I can't remember uh, Italian, you know, I can't. So as easy as rolling off log, when you remembered this, what, did you remember the whole cartoon? Did you remember the song, the lyrics? I mean, did you have to go look it up when you were? Yeah, we looked it up. Okay. I, I showed it to uh, to John and to uh, Dave O'Donnell, my, my other co-producer. And, uh, you know, they, they dug the song and we decided to give it a try. You know, we, we must have cut 22 songs in all and, and only put 14 on the record. I really was amazed by this, but also, as you, you say, the, just the act of memory, there are cartoons with songs in them I remember, but those are songs that you go on hearing. But this one, you, you couldn't have heard since back then. Well, you know, when I, when I told Cooch, I talked to Cooch about the songs I was thinking of recording, I told him about that one, and he said, uh, yeah, yeah you, you were always going on about that song, you know, I remember that. You know, when you're in a band with someone, you're going to share pretty much whatever musical thoughts and directions you have. And whatever's in there is going to come out, like God Bless the Child, or like, you know, another song that Cooch and I did was uh, Pennies from Heaven, or It's Only a Paper Moon. Both of which are on this record. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So Cooch knew a lot about what songs I thought were important to me. I want to ask you a little more about Breakshot. This memoir is very personal, very revealing. A number of things in it you've talked about before, although there are certainly some stories that I've never heard before. But let's just start with the title, Breakshot. Where does that come from? You know, a breakshot in pool is where you, where you rack up the balls into a triangle. They're all very neatly uh, ordered and positioned on the pool table. And then you start the game, you break the game with the breakshot where you, where you take the cue ball and typically send it at speed into that triangle of balls and they just go everywhere. You know, it's just, it's from order to chaos in a second. And that very much seemed to me to properly uh, describe the moment in my family's life when we sort of jumped the rails and suddenly we were all in the wind, you know. And that moment, as you explain in the memoir, is in the mid-60s. That's right, yeah, 1965 for me. And what was going on right then? I had spent a year at home with the year when I was in my brother's band, 1964-65. At the end of that year, I realized that I'd been gone from home for too long. There was no place for me there. I just felt, well, you know, if I've got to finish up my high school, I, if they'll take me back at the school I left, I think I'll be better positioned to You've go You've been to, going to boarding school at Milton Academy, yeah. at, just outside of Boston. Yeah, and I thought if I went back to Milton, if they'd have me, I'd be better positioned to uh, to apply to college. So... I went back to Milton. They did take me back. They, they didn't have a room for me, but one of the teachers there put me up in his quarters. And um, things started to go downhill for me. And at the time, my, I didn't feel it. You know, my family had said, sure, come back home. And then I'd said, no, I, I want to go back there. I, I felt like I remembered all the feelings that, that why I wanted to leave in the first place. It, it's a very different place today than it was then. Uh, it was sort of an anachronism. It was uh, it was preparing people for a life that didn't exist anymore, like sort of a class society that didn't exist. 
and it's definitely changed its tune. I have two kids there now. My, my two twin boys are going to Milton right now. But I didn't feel I could talk to my parents, and they themselves were so preoccupied with the dissolution of their own marriage, and my father had had, had a drinking problem for a, a long time, and, and it, was, it was sort of progressing to the point where he, he was getting in, in real desperate straits. So uh, I just spiraled down. My family came up to see my mother's family in, in Newburyport over the Thanksgiving break. And while we were on that break, a family friend and a couple of, and one of the teachers at school, the guy who was, was putting me up, took my parents aside and said, uh, you know, get over yourselves. Your son's in trouble, you know. And so I went to see a professional and he suggested that I, I spend a, a couple of weeks uh, being, you know, sort of under observation uh, just to to see what how serious a situation this was. He he didn't want to take chances with with my survival. I went in for two weeks and and stayed there for ten months. Spent my entire college fund on a mental hospital. This know. was this was McLean McLean Hospital. Yeah, a, a great place, but I don't think I benefited at all from any psychotherapy there. I I think that basically the fact that I had dismissed my family's expectations of me. That was the main thing I got was freedom, was, was okay, we don't have any expectations of you anymore. You know, it's, it's canceled. Because you had gone back to Milton with the idea of going to college. Your father was a doctor. You've said you were interested in chemistry. You might have ended up as a, a chemist or a pharmacist or right. so, something down that... Medicine adjacent. Well, the, let's the say. well, the pharmacist is a is a joke. Just, oh, I see. Uh, you know, uh, referring to my my trouble with addiction for many years. But, I see. But yes, really, uh, uh, my interest in chemistry. You know, but in fact, uh, I was. You know, that did interest me. But I was getting very mixed signals from my family about what their expectations were, and I was a very uh, driven by m- my sense of duty and my and what people expected of me. I was a good son. I was the sort of opposite pole to my brother Alex, who was a real rebel, and who, when my father was away for two years, uh, went to war with my mother in the most alarming way. So I tried the other tack. I tried to be concerned for... My mom was pretty upset during that period of time when my dad was away. So I tried to be as helpful as I could, you know, and I took as my own responsibility her sort of... Her state, her mental state, her spirit. Rich relations bring crusts of bread and such. You can help yourself, just don't take too much. No. Mama may have, Papa may have, Papa, God bless the child that can stand up and say. I've got my own. Your dad went for two years mm. to the South Pole. Is, is that right? Yeah, it was between 57 and 59, I believe, or, or 56 and 58. Probably between 56 and 58, yeah. I was wondering because I was thinking about the, the freedom you're describing this being free of expectations. You really removed yourself from the world for a moment. 
Do you think that your father might have had a similar feeling disappearing to the South Pole? Mm. Yes, I, I do think so. Well, it's clear that he found his marriage intolerable mm. because uh, ultimately it ended. But it was also, my father had his own sort of tragic uh, childhood. Uh, his mother died giving birth to him. His grandfather had delivered him and felt responsible and himself was dead within two months of, of her death. His father uh, fell off the deep end and uh, disappeared down into to a bottle and my father was raised next door by his aunt. And I think my dad always had a very conditional feeling about about being uh, in his life and a sense of shame and, and uh, questioning, self-doubt sur- surrounding his, uh, his childhood, his, the circumstances of his birth. I believe that this was a sort of engine that drove him to perfection. You know, he was a real star academician, and he was... He built a medical school at the University of North Carolina. He was the dean of medicine there. It went from a two-year program to a four-year program under his, his uh, auspices. But the thing is, uh, he had always identified with the polar explorers. And I, I believe that's because he felt so isolated, and he felt the, the, the sense of uh, will and of uh, uh, fortitude and of uh, as, uh, sort of facing up to hardship that, that he identified with it in Shackleton, in, in Ross, in, uh, in Scott, in Amundsen, in, uh, you know, all of these polar explorers that uh, he, uh, when, I, when he died, I inherited his books, and he had a extreme library on all these guys, you know. And so w- when he was drafted, they took a rain check on his military service during his uh, education, becoming a doctor, because, you know, they thought he'd be more valuable to them once he was a doctor. So uh, they, they took a rain check, but they drafted him in 1955. He was stationed at Bethesda Naval Hospital, being a Navy doc. That was a very bad fit for my dad. And uh, when somebody came up and said, uh, Admiral Byrd is, is leading his final expedition to the South Pole, we're going to, it was the International Geophysical Year. It was Admiral Byrd, no less. Yeah, wow. Was, and, uh, you know, he was putting it together. He wasn't there. Okay. But, it was, but uh, you know, they're going to go to the South Pole. They're going to s- send a, a crew of Navy Seabees down there to build this scientific base at McMurdo Sound, which is like a city on the ice now. And there was nothing there. When, when he went. And, and so my dad volunteered. He said, I'll be the doctor for this 200 men or so that's, that are going down to build this, this uh, you know, and, it, and he, he basically disappeared because there was no communication. You know, sometimes you could bounce a, a ham radio signal off the ionosphere or whatever and then back down to, to Earth. You could get a signal to Australia and then someone would forward that, right? But letters came once a year when the supply ship picked him up. Once a year. Mm. Good heavens. Packets of letters all numbered that we would read in, in order every day. You must have missed him terribly. I miss him a lot. But I think my brother Alex really suffered from, from his absence. In your own moment of isolation at, at McLean, you, you, you found this kind of freedom. And, and you were able from that to pursue a career in music. Mm-hmm. Is that what you knew you might want to do before you went there? Yeah. You know, I played in a band. Um, Cooch and I had a, a duo together. It was part of what Cooch used to call the great folk scare of the early 60s. 
this would have been on Martha's Vineyard. On Martha's Vineyard and in Boston and in New York, there was a very strong scene, folk music scene, great uh, country blues, Celtic music, uh, jug band music, you know, great stuff. And it was an easy way to get started. You just needed a guitar and a microphone. But at any rate, uh, I saw myself doing that, and I used to play at open mic nights and stuff. And and Cooch and I actually, when I was 15 and he was 17, we actually had a gig together uh, on the vineyard at a a sort of summer iteration of a folk club that was in Boston. It was an incredible uh, period. You know, it was was great. We were listening to a lot of music, and, and there was a sense that we could do this, you know. So once I got, I broke free, um... I got together with Cooch again, and he said, let's go to New York and do it. Let's go. I was 18 and free. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Things moved not instantly forward for you, but Quickly enough, within a, a few years, you were in London. You cut a record for Apple. Mm-hmm. And then you came to the States, and, and you and, and Peter Asher were looking for a record deal. And, and I was really struck by something that comes up in Breakshot, and this is just amazing. You talk about playing at the Newport Folk Festival in July of 1969. You, I guess, didn't have a record deal at that point. But I just want to linger on who was on the bill. That would have been Joni Mitchell, Johnny Cash, Van Morrison, Arlo Guthrie, Chris Christopherson, Pete Seeger, and Muddy Waters. Wow, talk about getting your money's worth. Yeah, no, it was it was a great bill. And, and in, of course, in those days, the Newport Folk Festival was a, was a big deal. You know, that was like, if you were in the business, and a lot of people were, you, you showed up at that. When George Ween called and said, will you come play this festival? That was where you got hurt. And, um, and so, so, yeah, D- you know, Dylan had gone electric there uh, uh, two summers previous uh, 
in 67 or 68. I'm not sure which one, but, you know, that had been a big... 66, I think, actually. But, it's a but, sea change. You yeah, know? It's a, Titanic, yeah. yeah. But Doug Kershaw was also on the bill, the Raging Cajun, you know, and, uh, um, man, who else? Uh, it, it was, it was, it was a, a great year. Just because I worked at Rolling Stone for a long time and from working on an anniversary issue, I know something else that happened at Newport that year, which was the, the magazine's then chief photographer, Baron Woolman, was backstage just before you played. He, he shot a couple of frames of you, and a couple of years later, that became your first Rolling Stone cover. I just want to pull this out for those of you at home. Uh, it's, a, it's a black and white photo, quite striking. Yeah, that's, uh, you know... That's the severe, sensitive look there, yeah. When we were working on that anniversary issue, uh, we got a quote from Peter Asher about that picture. He said, uh, that's the James I know well. He is intense. He can scare the shit out of people with a stare like that. Well, Peter knows me, I guess. (laughs) I I wouldn't have thought so, but... You would not have described yourself as a scary guy? No, I wouldn't. Ask my wife. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think when you look at that photo now. Yeah, you know, I, I'm still that same person. That's, that, that's the, the, the sense that you get. Uh, one of the things that you learn as you get older is that you're the same person that you were when you're 17. I'm sure you know that, you know that too, you know. But you'll be that person for the rest of your life. You know, you feel like um, someone who's, when you're 18 and you see somebody who's uh, 70, you think, well, that, they speak a totally different language and come from a different world, you know. I'll never be that person. But in fact, that person is still an 18-year-old inside. Well, you're going on tour this year. You're going to be playing shows with Bonnie Raitt and Jackson Brown. Yeah. Talk to me about that. How has touring changed for you? You've talked about the the pull between the road and the domesticity of, of home life. Mm-hmm. Does the road still have a pull for you? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, of course, it, it, it does. I... I, I think of it as, as what my work is, you know. I, um, ultimately, that's what I do for a living. Because of the connection with the audience. Yes, and also it's the thing that makes me an income. I mean, it's the thing that we live off in my, in my family. It's, uh, it's my work. And I think that musicians sometimes presume to, to call themselves artists, but if I am an artist, it's my art, you know. It's my medium, and uh, that and... And recorded music is my also my medium. And how have things changed for you on the road in the, the many years you've been playing? Well, um, I think it's it's a known quantity to me now, and it, it, it I'm familiar with with what it is and how to do it. I have a method, so I'm better at surviving it now. And when you say you have a method, do you mean a method of survival or yeah. Method? okay, yeah, a method of of getting through it, of getting enough rest, of getting the right food getting through the, the uh, couple of weeks until the next break. Also, how to balance home life and, and life on the road. So y- you just sort of get better at it. I'm told you traveled here today to, to New York with your dog. Did your dog come on the, on the road with you? No, no, not so far. I, you know, it, coming to New York is, is stress enough for an old dog, you know. She's, she's an old girl, uh, 12 years old now. That's, that's getting, getting up there. Even for a pug, little dogs seem to live longer. We're hoping that she'll be with us for a while yet, but, you know, she's getting old. What's her name? Ting, T-I-N-G. She's named after a a soft drink that they sell in the Caribbean. I think it's a Jamaican soft drink. uh, Tastes like uh, grapefruit. 
very sweet, tangy, most refreshing. I recommend it heartily. Just before we go, I, I, I want to ask you about something in Breakshot that, that struck me. When you're talking about music, you, you talk about how it's true to the laws of physics. Music is not arbitrary. It's empirically real and true. It follows the rules. Music takes us outside the prison of the self, which isn't its static thing. And one thing I was struck by, you know, you, your dad was a man of science and medicine. And here you are talking about music in a somewhat scientific way. And I wondered if after all of this freedom and searching and breaking away, there was also a sense of coming back to some of those core values you grew up with. Oh, no, I think I've always been, uh, my father is a huge, uh, uh, you know, a very large percentage of who I am. And uh, I think I identify myself in his image, really. I admire him uh, hugely. I love him and I miss him. I'm glad he's not seeing what's happening to our government, but because that would definitely send him around the bend. But I wish I could talk to him about it, tell you the truth. So, yeah. Yeah, no, my dad was a remarkable man. My mother, too. Well, remarkable woman, but... Hmm. So you, you didn't follow your dad into medicine, but you are out there ministering to the people in your own way. Well, you know, uh, I think my dad was really glad to see me make a go of it in music. You know, I think I never got even a, a hint of resistance from him that, that I shouldn't be doing this. He could easily have said, uh, snap too, get with it, kid. You know, this, your chances are, are absolutely nothing and you've got a good education, go for it, you know. Get back in line, pull, pull you, get over yourself, you know. But, you know, he didn't. He gave me, uh, he let me run. And all of those expectations that I found it so hard to escape from, almost, you know, like chemotherapy hard, you know, uh, all of those things uh, were my own anxiety. It, it wasn't borne home by my folks. Uh, they, they were really glad for me. So your own prison of the self, as it were, and, and music in that sense was your escape. Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I, I think in that way, music saved my life. But I was lucky also to survive. I did some very stupid, uh, you know, some years that were, were just really high risk, unnecessarily so. And a lot of people around us died, you know. We lost so many really talented people. Thought I'd see you one more time again. Just a few things that come in my way this time around Thought I'd see you, thought I'd see you fire and rain Well, we're, we're glad to still have you with us, and uh, I just want to thank you for being here inside the studio. Thank you, Joe. It's nice to talk to you. Inside the Studio is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! 
Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 